Father, as we come into this time of the year when we, when we particularly focus on the first advent of Christ, we're so grateful that we, as true believers, can know the joy of that Christmas, that first Christmas and, and the multiple celebrations that have occurred since that time. Lord, as we worship together, it is not just a time for making merry and having good food and exchanging gifts, but it's a time when we're reminded that Christ came, became the incarnate one, that we might have life, life eternal. And without that, the celebration would be totally meaningless. Oh God, we thank you from the depths of our heart for bringing us into your kingdom. And we greatly look forward to the second advent of our Lord, even as we read in the scripture, O Lord, come quickly. We ask that you will be with us in this hour, that you will bless our study of your word. Throughout this Sunday school complex this morning, may you be at work in every class and in every heart. And as the service is also transpiring in the sanctuary, we ask you to be there in a special way. Lord, touch the hearts of those who may be here today who are unbelievers and bring them to true faith. And for those that are discouraged, bring encouragement. For those who need a, a healing touch, Lord, minister healing to that heart, that spirit, that mind, that body. And we ask in all of it, Lord, that you will be glorified this day in Christ's name. Amen. If you will turn to the 14th chapter of the book of Exodus, reading at verse 15. Oh, that's right. I forgot to mention that if anybody doesn't have a page 11, we should be finishing that today. Norma has some copies. You can raise your hand and she'll get you one if you want one. Verse 15, Exodus 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. And as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. And as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was a cloud along with darkness. Yet it gave light at night. Thus, the one did not come near the other all night. Two plus million Israelites have been marching towards the Sinai from Egypt. They have not really left Egypt yet. And they're encamped there beside this great body of water, which in Exodus is called the Sea of Reeds. <coughs> And I won't go into a discussion again about what that might be. We spent part of one of our class sessions a week or two ago talking about the, all the possibilities there. It has been rendered as Red Sea in the New Testament, so we'll just use the term Red Sea, whatever that might have meant at that particular time. It was a great body of water 
We're not talking about, as some have tried to indicate in their liberal interpretations of this, that it was just kind of a little swampy area that they waded through. As uh, some have pointed out, well, we could maybe understand how the Israelites could wade through a swamp, but how do you drown an army in a foot of water? They're camped there before this body of water, which is in front of them. And coming behind them, they begin to see the army of the Egyptians. The chariots are coming. The cloud of dust is rising. The infantry is marching behind as, as they're coming quickly to try to overtake Israel. And the Israelis feel trapped there because they cannot go forward and they cannot retreat because of the water before them and the enemy behind them. They become consumed with fear, the scripture tells us. They, they, they throw up a cry to God, but then they immediately begin to accuse Moses. Why did you bring us out into this wilderness to kill us out here in the desert? Moses reacts with rather uncommon and obviously God-given patience because Moses said to them, Be still and see what God will do for you. Do away with your fear. Reject fear and choose faith and see what God will do. In this 15th verse that we read this morning, the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? This, of course, indicates that Moses had also prayed to God. And God is not rebuking him here. He's not saying you shouldn't have done it. He is simply saying to Moses, Now act on your faith. Moses brought the concerns of the people before the Lord. This is what he was to do, and this is what we are to do. God is not reproving him. But you know what's interesting here is Moses has already made the claim and the statement, be still, stand still, shut up, if you will, and see what God is going to do. I mean, he's gone way out on the limb, claiming that God is going to miraculously deliver the people, but what is interesting is he had no idea how God would do it. God has not revealed to him a plan yet before he has already made the claim that God will deliver him. Reminds me of the words of Nehemiah when he was going to take a group of exiles back to Judah from Babylonia and uh, actually was under the time of the Persians, Persian control, but they were living in, in the land of Babylon. And he had already told the Persian king, I don't need an escort because God will be our guard and will, will carry us through. And then when they were ready to go and they were told about all the enemies along the way, he stopped and thought, hmm, <laughs> I wonder if we should have a guard. And he thought, nope, I can't say to the king now after I've already witnessed to him that God will be our guard, that I need your help. And so he went anyway in faith. And so Moses has proclaimed in faith that God would deliver them. What is interesting here is he didn't know how God would do it, but he was sure God would do it. And that's the essence of faith. We don't know how God is going to always fulfill his promises, do we? But do we know that he will fulfill his promises? I trust so. This is part of the, of the Christian walk. It's coming to the point of faith where we know God will do what God has said he will do. And there is no question about it. We may not know how he's going to do it, but we know that he is going to do it. We're told in Hebrews 11.1 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction 
of things not seen. That reminded me when I was reading that passage of John 20. I think I have that on the outline there. John 20, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are, the, are they who did not see and yet believed. Who did not see and yet believed. Thomas was an empirical kind of guy, you know. I won't believe unless I can actually touch it, see it. Somehow my senses must perceive that it is true. So Jesus says, go ahead, touch me. And Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. It's an interesting passage. Um, probably you have, as I have, in dealing with like Jehovah's Witnesses, have uh, referred to this passage, and of course they have an answer for it too. And that is that Thomas was not speaking to Jesus, but to God. Oh, my Lord and my God, it's true, you know, that he wasn't really calling Jesus my Lord and my God. But it's obvious from the context uh, of this passage that he was referring to Christ. Once the stand of faith was taken, and, and Moses had proclaimed that God would act, then God so chose to reveal to Moses what he was going to do, how he was going to deliver Israel in the midst of this crisis. In addition, God told him something else, and that is that he was going to glorify himself in Pharaoh, in Pharaoh's horsemen, and in Pharaoh's chariots. In this advance guard that was fast approaching, or would soon be forced to camp, but next would, of course, pursue Israel once Israel had taken flight through the sea. Throughout all of history, the name of God has been feared by many because of what God did this very day. In fact, we're going to see as we turn to the next chapter in the Song of Moses, Moses mentions the fact that Philistia trembles and Edom and Moab tremble as, as they hear of what God has done and as Israel approaches their territories. God honors his name and I think it needs to be emphasized, and I, I'm sure we all understand this, but there are many who don't understand this, that when God says, I will honor my name in these people, he's not saying this for some kind of selfish motive. Ah, oh, being God, I've got to have honor, so I'm going to honor myself. He is doing it, of course, for the purpose of changing the hearts and minds of people from false worship to the worship of the true and the living God, for, for the purpose of their salvation. God is not willing that any should perish, and therefore he will go to great lengths to bring people into his fold, and to glorify himself is to draw people unto himself. Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And of course we uh, see that partly as the cross, but it also, I think, means in the exaltation of Christ. God did honor his name. And in bringing honor to his name, in this particular instance, he had to harden the hearts of the Egyptian, of the Egyptians. And what, what the literal meaning here is, he made their hearts strong, which means he took away their fear. And we have to understand that because as you look at this particular situation, if these Egyptians had had any wisdom, would they have plunged after Israel into this dry seabed? After what they had seen? God had devastated Egypt with ten plagues. 
He had killed the firstborn of every household and of every animal. He had led Israel with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of cloud by night. And he had dried the seabed in front of them. These were not normal experiences in life. I, I think as I read this, I try to put myself there. Would I have driven a chariot in between those walls of water chasing after the nation whose God had raised those walls of water. <laughs> I would think in being a rational person and of sound mind that I would not, even if Pharaoh said to. But, of course, God had taken the fear out of their hearts. So I would have probably gone in too, like all the rest. Oh, no big deal. Let's go after them, you know. The walls will stay there and we'll catch them. And Verse 19 gives us insight a little bit into how God operates. Uh, after class last time, uh, someone asked because I had made the statement that uh, there's no place in Scripture where we should ever pray to an angel and that an angel would do anything because, as I think I mentioned to you, Erwin Lutzer is in a series right now on angels and this is one of the things he mentioned because there are several cults in operation today where people actually pray to angels and they have an angel they pray to and this angel is sort of like their pseudo-god or their in-between. It's, it's kind of a, almost a form of Gnosticism in, in many ways. But the, the question was, you know, did I mean by that that angels didn't ever do anything for people and that's of course not what I meant at all. We can ask God for help and he will send his help in the form of angels many times. We may not see them, but, but they're there. Scripture talks about angels over and over again. And we see that in this particular passage. His presence is manifested in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. We're told through an angel. The angel of the Lord is there. And this does not seem to be uh, a reference that can be directly interpreted as a theophany. It may be, but it also may not be. <clears throat> So we have an angel, it would seem, that's actually moving the cloud around uh, according to God's uh, uh, direction. God created angels as ministering spirits. We're told that in Hebrews. And he manifests his presence to men and women often in, the, in angelic form. And you have read stories, as I have, of people who have literally run into angels in human form. I mean, they've, they've seen and talked to a person who later could not have been anything but an angel because of what subsequently happened. I mean, they just evaporated, you know, in, into thin air in many instances. And uh, stories where, you know, an enemy uh, doesn't attack a, a missionary's house because they saw these flaming uh, warriors all around while they were in there praying on their knees. Well, obviously, God's angels are there to serve God's purpose. God commanded the angel to move the cloud, and he moved the pillar of, of cloud, which by this time, because it was nighttime, was converting into a pillar of fire, from in front of Israel around to behind Israel, so that it was between Israel and the approaching Egyptians. That might have been scary. You know, see this big thing coming around and, and blocking your... your access to the camp of Israel, and it forced the Egyptians to camp. What was the point of going forward to this giant cloud in front of them that was turning into a fiery thing, at least <clears throat> for a part of the time? 
And, there, there, and it was getting nighttime anyway, so there was no purpose in, in attacking, so they, they camped. It seems, there's, there seems to be evidence from this passage that as the night progressed, that the side of the cloud facing the Egyptians was, was just black, and darkness was in their camp. But the side facing Israel was ablaze with fire, and they were able, to, in that light, to begin to, to go out into the body of water. Well, let's look at verse um, 21, 21 through 25 of four, chapter 14 of Exodus. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. And it came about at the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. And he caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. In obedience to God's command, Moses took the rod of the Lord and extended it out over the sea. And I'm sure the leading Israelites who were standing around watching Moses were wondering oh, what's, what's going to happen next, because they had never seen anything like this before. Of course, neither had Moses. Immediately, we're told, a strong east wind began to blow. It blew all night, we're told. Now, what is the purpose of this wind? Well, we normally interpret it as blowing a path through the sea. Well, as you think about this for a moment, this is possible, providing God did something rather miraculous with the wind, which he could have, of course, done. But I feel that the purpose of the wind primarily was to dry the seabed. First of all, we're looking at an east wind, which means it's blowing out of the east. The children of Israel were headed east, so they would be dead into the wind. If that wind were strong enough itself to part the sea, they aren't going to march into that wind. They aren't going anywhere. You experienced a wind this past week of 85 miles per hour, and up in Oregon, 120. Hey, that's a gentle breeze compared to what this would have to be in order to raise the, the sea. I mean, you see these, seas, these water spouts that create, and those are, what do you call those things, uh, tornadoes that go into the water. Well, tornado wind velocities are from three to 500 miles per hour. Israel would not have been walking into that wind. That would have blown Israel from there back to, you know, where they came from. The purpose of the wind was to dry the seabed. Unless God, of course, shunted the water, the wind velocity just along the wall of the water and left a dead spot in the middle, which, of course, God could do. Whatever he did, it was a miraculous uh, provision that God brought about here. The Israelites marched out into the seabed. This is at nighttime now. By the light of the pillar of fire. That was the light that was cast out there so that they could now march out into the seabed. My point, uh, thought here was, what did these think people think? What would you have thought if you saw Moses 
do this thing and all of a sudden you know, the wind starts blowing and then pretty soon the, the, the sea starts to part and rise uh, to form great walls of water and then there was a pathway being opened and as the wind blew the, the, the pathway became dry. What would you think? As you, under the direction of the Lord given to Moses, as Moses led the way out into this pathway between these walls of water, what would you think, you know? We, you, we wouldn't do it with no emotion. I think we'd be a ball of emotions. And I think we'd have many emotions, as probably these people had. Certainly, they were uh, impacted by the fact that I don't think these walls of water stood like they were frozen. I think they kind of undulated there, you know. <laughs> and as they walked along, they might have said, hey, look at the fish. <laughs> well, maybe not, I don't know. But, you know, I, I think that there was some fear. That would be natural, to have some fear. I think on the part of some people, there was some elation. <laughs> Whoa, you know, this is exciting. I've never done anything like this before. Incredulity. <laughs> Can this really be happening? <laughs> Maybe I'm asleep in my tent, you know. And of course, overall, awe at the power of God to be able to move water as if it were done in miniature, which is the way it was done by Cecil B. DeMille's, right? Yeah, it's really hard, you know, you watch the Ten Commandments and you see this happen. It's hard to get that out of your mind, you know. <laughs> if you've ever seen that, you know, it starts... Whoosh, off in the distance. And at least he didn't do it according to liberal scholars and just have a, a maybe a little wave or two, you know, in this shallow stuff that they plotted through. The cloud that had prevented the Egyptians from advancing now moved back in front of Israel and began to advance through the seabed. And Israel moved by the light of that pillar of fire out onto the seabed. The Egyptians saw the cloud move. And as the light was cast, they could see Israel disappearing down this pathway. And they foolhardily decided to pursue them into this path, into seabed, into the seabed. So they plunge headlong, driving their chariots and running their horses and the infantry, of course, coming up as best they could uh, into the seabed. I don't know what the seabed would have been like. Uh, many lake beds would be relatively flat. But seabeds, if this was actually a part of the Red Sea itself, maybe that, that arm of the Gulf of Suez <clears throat> could have been relatively rocky. We don't know. They'd have to keep watching, you know, for rocks and pits and various other things as they move through the seabed. But the scripture tells us that as the gap began to close, as the Egyptians began to catch up with the Israelites, that God threw the Egyptians into confusion. They had never experienced anything like this before, and I think they were a little skittish. I know I would be. Now, it, it isn't clear to us in English in uh, verse 24 where it says, And it came about at the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire. But in Hebrew, there's an implication here that there was a bursting forth of this fire. That there was kind of like a of the fire down towards the Egyptians as God looked down, kind of like a blowtorch effect, you know, down towards the Egyptians as they were moving forward. 
And this certainly would have been a frightening thing for them to witness. All of a sudden, this fiery thing starts to move towards them. It would scare the horses. The charioteers would start becoming confused, losing control maybe, running into rocks, running into each other, uh, the wheels starting to break and fall off the chariots. And what's interesting is that they began to become convinced that Yahweh was fighting for Israel. Now, if we look at that, it sounds like these guys must really be dense. I mean, this has been going on for weeks, for months. You know, great hailstones out of heaven, lightning striking and killing animals, uh, darkness over all of Egypt, but not in Goshen. Uh, of course, the firstborn dying, plagues of locusts, plagues of flies. How long would it take them to realize that the God of Israel was powerful and was fighting for them? So you wonder how much convincing they really needed here. Confusion in the Egyptian ranks. Towering walls of water. I don't know how the wall, far high the walls of water were. I was thinking about this this morning. How deep was the body of water? It didn't have to be real deep, did it? I mean, even if it was only 20 feet deep, you couldn't have gotten across it with, uh, with Israel, without boats. And, and even if it were only 20 feet deep, the walls would have to be at least 20 feet. And then what did you do with all the water that was in that middle section? It didn't, I don't think God cleared a path through the sea as wide as this room. We're moving two plus million people across this seabed in one night. So he had to, I believe he had to clear a wide path. Who knows, maybe a mile wide or more. So these people could move in mass out across this seabed. And so all that water would have to be piled up. And now if we're talking about an arm of the Red Sea, of course, water seeks its own level. You could throw it out there and it could kind of dissipate and wouldn't maybe add to it if it were one of the bitter lakes. It would have to be piled up there. We're talking about walls of water, however high they were. And they were very threatening uh, to the Egyptians. And so with this confusion, the walls of water, and with this bursting forth of the flame from the pillar of fire, the Egyptians became terrified. And in panic, they turned. And they attempted to flee. Let's get out of here. And they began to turn around and move back towards the western shore. Now, how was this order transmitted? Or was it an order? Was it just the, initial, the people out front saying, this is a dangerous place, we're getting out of here. Turning around and trying to move back through the ranks so the people are still moving forward? Talk about confusion. If you've ever studied the history of the Civil War, when the initial battle was fought at uh, Manassas Junction, what's called the First Battle of Bull Run, the Union and the Confederate forces were about of equal size, but as they clashed across Bull Run Creek, and as the, the federal forces discovered that their communication wasn't good enough to effect the assault, they began to become confused. They began to retreat. And as they began to retreat, the Confederates, of course, began to pursue as best they could. They were pretty, everybody was green in this battle. Uh, but the people from Washington had come down in their chariots to sit on hillsides with blankets and food and watch the battle, you know. As if this was some kind of, it's like the people at Charleston sitting on their housetops watching the bombardment of Fort Sumter, you know, it was kind of a, something to do on a Sunday afternoon. And, and as these people realized the Union forces are in retreat, we're in trouble, they all got near chariots, got back down on the road, and they blocked the road. 
So it was nothing but mass confusion. The army trying to retreat, all these civilians in the way, the Confederates lobbing shells down on them. I mean, it was just total bedlam. And it turned into an, a total rout of the Union forces. And so what we're talking about here is, is a rout. I mean, it's just kind of like, you know, every man for himself. There's no order in the ranks. They're just running for the opposite shore. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even, in Pharaoh, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. And the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptian dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Can you imagine a more dramatic way to close a chapter in the history of a nation? The Egyptian chapter is slammed shut with a literal bang. That 400 years in Egypt are now finished. And there is no question about the fact that they are not to be in Egypt any longer as slave or free. At the command of the Lord, Moses raised the staff, standing on the opposite shore now, raised the staff over the sea. And just as God had opened the sea, God closed the sea over the retreating Egyptians. I don't think it was just kind of a slow settling in of the water, you know, slow rising of the level, blah, 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 blah. I think it came crashing in, boiling water as the two walls collapsed onto the retreating enemy. Right at daybreak, the great walls caved in, and the scripture says it drowned the entire force. It drowned all the charioteers and all the horsemen and whatever infantry made it in. Everyone who was in the seabed was destroyed. I think as Moses watched that happen, Moses experienced conflicting emotions. There was elation. The enemy is dead. Our God is proven to be the true, the almighty, the real God. And yet, I think in Moses' heart, there was compassion for those men out there who were dying. Because why were they dying? They were dying because of the folly of Pharaoh. They didn't choose to be out there. They were just obeying commands. I don't think they had anything necessarily personally against the Israelites, except some of them may have, because brother may have died, father may have died, someone close to them may have died in the last plague and they may have blamed it on Israel because it was their God. I think Moses was sad to see so many die on the altar of Pharaoh's folly. Strange, is it not, that the path through the sea, which was the path of salvation for Israel, was the path of destruction for Egypt. The same path 
Same sea, but for one salvation, for the other, destruction. As I thought about that, it brought to mind a passage which I do not have on the outline uh, from 1 Peter. I think you know it well, but it seemed to be parallel in thought to me anyway. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed." Christ is salvation to those who believe, but he is damnation to those who will not believe. He is our path to heaven, but he is the wall that prevents those who will not believe from that very path. Israel was saved. Egypt was destroyed by the very same path. Israel believed. We might say, uh, <laughs> if you want to call that belief, but hey, Look at our own lives. Is, and Egypt did not believe, and the Egyptians were destroyed. It's very, very clear from this passage that it was the Lord who was in charge of all that transpired here. God saved Israel. And of course, the evidence of the magnitude of this, of, of this deliverance could be seen as the sun came up and as the waves washed the shore of the body of water and they saw the dead beginning to float up to the shore. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Egyptians dead there in the sea. Stark reality of disobedience. Glorious victory for Israel, although certainly looking over, uh, you know, flotsam of, of dead Egyptians would not be a joyous sight, other than to know your enemy was destroyed. But certainly your heart would have to go out for the individuals out there who've perished in this holocaust. God had demonstrated to his people great power. They had never witnessed anything like it before. And for the most part, they would never witness anything like it again. God will yet deliver Israel miraculously many times. He will even cause the sun to stand still for a period of possibly as much as 24 hours. And yet, do you know, that, that's, that's amazing when you think about it. But this was something that they could actually visually see happen before their very eyes. The response of the people was twofold. First of all, we read that they feared the Lord. And I think that could be interpreted both ways. I think many of them were literally scared, spitless about God. Anyone who could do this is somebody we need to be very concerned about. They had never seen anything like it throughout their history. I mean, they had lived a very dull existence as slaves there in Egypt. You know, humdrum every day. Sun came up, sun went down. Got whipped today, got whipped tomorrow, you know. Put this brick here, put this brick here. You know, life was dull, unexciting, and uneventful, except maybe a plague of grasshoppers came through once in a while to brighten their dull day. Or one of the overseers might have gotten grabbed by a crocodile and carried off into the Nile or something exciting. But other than that, they had never witnessed anything, anything like this 
before. And the chief impact, though, was the, the, the understanding of fear in the sense of reverence and awe. To fear the Lord, to stand in awe of His majesty and His power. As you can when you go out on a, on a moonless night, cloudless, moonless night, and, and look up at the stars and say, what a mighty God we serve. We fear Him in the sense of awe and reverence of who He is. And certainly that was the overwhelming impact of what happened. Could it be that this almighty, all-powerful God who could destroy the army, the most powerful army of the world at that day probably, could, could destroy that army in this miraculous way, could be the God of a bunch of motley slaves? That He could care for us who are unworthy of His concern? And I think they began to understand a little bit of how Yahweh was El Shaddai. Why was he called El Shaddai? Well, while they lived in Egypt, they had no reason to know that he was El Shaddai, the Almighty One, because all they knew was the humdrum of everyday slavery and uh, serving the masters who worshipped gods who were different. But now they knew who El Shaddai was. And the fear of the Lord, of course, we're told, is the beginning of wisdom. <clears throat> in uh, Psalm 111, we have a statement of what it means to fear the Lord. Beginning at verse nine, uh, 10, Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Going on into 12, 112. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness <clears throat> for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear. Until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. And then in Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, 8, 12. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. So let me just wrap it up with the second response of the people. The scripture says, they believed the Lord and Moses. They came to have faith in the word of the Lord. And that is absolutely essential to the efficient and effective living of the Christian life. We must have faith in the word of the Lord because we have faith in the one who spoke the word. And they had to have faith in the word of the Lord as communicated by Moses because they couldn't pick up Exodus and say, oh, well, let's see, what is God saying here? 
They had to hear it through Moses. They had to trust that Moses was God's spokesman. And this is very, very important that they learn this now. Because within a few months, they are going to be standing at the base of a mountain called Sinai. And Moses is going to disappear up on that mountain for a month, more. And, and then he's going to come down and he's going to say, Thus saith the Lord. And if they don't believe him, <laughs> then it's, it's not going to happen. But because they're learning to believe the word of the Lord as communicated by Moses, then they will believe as the word of God comes down from Mount Sinai. And the scripture teaches in the Old Testament that by believing the Lord, impute, uh, righteousness is imputed. The Lord tells us in Genesis that Abraham believed in the Lord and God counted it to him, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Faith brought righteousness, faith in God. Some have said that by walking through that path in the Red Sea, that this was kind of like the baptism of Israel into the true faith that would come down from the top of Mount Sinai. Well, this brings us to chapter 15. And what we're going to do, not today, but three weeks from today when we come back, is look at the Psalm of Moses, the Song of Moses. It was a great celebration that day. Scripture tells us that Miriam let all the women out and, and they were singing and dancing and there was this great antiphonal uh, chanting or singing of this psalm. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. And praise to the God who had delivered them. And they had this great celebration there on the shores of the sea. And then they walk into the Sinai Desert and three days later they're griping to Moses because they ran out of water. Does this sound like anything you've heard before? <laughs> well, that sounds like me this past week, <laughs> you know. And that's a way it is. But through it all, what we see is God's incredible patience. <laughs> God's incredible patience.